Would you please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17. The story of David and Goliath. Who doesn't know this story? Anybody who has grown up in the church is very familiar with it. But even beyond the church, almost anybody in Western cultures will be familiar with David and Goliath. And so when we come to this chapter, we know what the crisis is in the chapter and we know how the story ends. But do we know what it means? This story is used frequently to speak about the need for courage. VeggieTales teaches us that little guys can do big things too. Even in modern business writing, people have brought the story of David and Goliath to bear. Malcolm Gladwell says that this story is really about, he's discovered what it's really about, it's really about competitive advantage. Don't fight your competitors on their terms. Realize that even guys like Goliath have weaknesses. Just because you can't wield the sword doesn't mean that you're at a disadvantage. If you're good with a sling, that may be all that you need. What do you think about these different ways of understanding the passage? The Bible does teach us something about courage. Be strong and courageous, Joshua is told. It does teach us that although we are weak, we can be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And I think there's some truth to Gladwell's teaching as well about competitive advantage. But are these the main things that 1 Samuel 17 is teaching us? Thankfully, in this passage, we don't have to speculate as to what the aim of the story is. It's given to us. I want you to just take a look at verses 46 to 47 of this passage. This is toward the end. As David is telling Goliath that he will take him down, he gives the reason that all of this will take place. It is so that All the earth may know that there is a God and Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not by sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's. There you have it. Put a star by those verses in this very familiar chapter. You can't read this chapter rightly without those verses in your mind. There is a lesson that needs to be learned from this passage for two groups of people. First, all of the earth. They need to learn that there is a God in Israel. He is not to be mocked. He is not to be trifled with. If you were here today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, this is what this passage wants you to hear.
But if you do belong to God, the people of God also need to learn a lesson that God does not save by human means. He has his own ways of saving. And as we'll see, they are quite different than we would expect. This passage is about God. Get that. It is about God. And the way that God saves His people. There may be many other lessons to be learned and gleaned from this passage. But we can't miss the main lesson. This passage is very long and we don't have time to cover all of it. But it's organized around three speeches from David. After we get a setup to the story in verses 1 to 11, David gives a speech to the men of Israel, verses 12 to 30. Then to Saul, this is found in verses 31 to 40. And then finally to Goliath. So a speech to the men of Israel, a speech to the king of Israel, and a speech to the enemy. Of Israel. These three speeches will give us three main points. And then at the end, I will return to this question of what we should do with this passage, how we should respond. And I'll give one final point there. So that's where we're going. We're not going to cover the whole thing. We're not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to kind of walk you through the passage. Let's begin with the setting. The stage is set. In verses 1 to 11, Israel and the Philistines are squared off in the valley of Elah. We see this in verses 1 to 3. We're not given the reason, but they're in a gridlock. So in verse 4, Goliath steps out from the Philistine camp and offers a challenge. In verses 4 to 7, we see him. And then in verses 8 to 10, we hear from him. So what do we see? We see that he is massive. We knew earlier that Saul was tall, the tallest of any man in all of Israel. We learned last week that David's oldest brother, Eliab, was also tall, but neither of these men are anything compared to Goliath. He's six cubits and a span tall. Depending on how you measure, that's really tall. He wouldn't have any problem dunking. He may not even have to jump. Goliath comes forward like he does. We see him, and it reminds me, some of you kids will know this and adults as well, of a scene from the Avengers where Iron Man and Loki are trying to one-up each other And Loki says, I've got all of these aliens that are about to enter the scene and they're going to fight for me. And then Iron Man says this, but we've got a Hulk. That's what Goliath is. The Philistines have a Hulk. But it's not only his size that's menacing, he's also decked out in in the latest technology of the day. So not only do they have a Hulk, they also have Iron Man's suit. 
He has a bronze helmet, a coat of mail, armor on his legs, a a sword really is what I think is being spoken of there with the javelin on his shoulder, a spear in his hand, and a shield that goes before him. Remember we learned a few weeks ago that Israel only had two swords in all of, of the nation. They are clearly outmatched. After we see Goliath in verses 4 to 7, unfortunately we have to hear from him. And he throws down a challenge. Look at verses 8 to 10. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why have you come out to draw up for a battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. There's no answer. And so the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. He's mocking them. That's what he means when he says, I defy the ranks of Israel. Reminds me of another movie, The Sandlot. Remember when Ham is going at it with the other team, trying to get them to enter into a challenge, and Ham closes the, um, the dialogue by saying, you play ball like a girl. I think that's what's going on here. His speech is meant to make Israel hot and to take him up on his challenge. But look at verse 11. When Saul, the tallest man in all of Israel, and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines They were dismayed, shattered, and greatly afraid. So the stage is set. The Philistines are a real and present danger for Israel. They're stronger. They've got a Hulk. They've got better tech as well. If Israel faces them on their terms, it will mean certain death. This is a major problem. But it's not the main problem in the passage. The main problem comes out in the next scene. It's already present at the end of this scene, but it becomes clear to us that there is a bigger problem when we come to David's first speech. We're introduced to David in verses 12 to 15. He's described almost identically to the way he was described to us last week in the first part of chapter 16. The youngest, or the smallest literally, of Jesse's eight sons. And this reminds us, this description of him in similar terms to chapter 16, reminds us of what we learned about David in chapter 16. David was anointed as the king of Israel. He was God's chosen king. And the Spirit 
of God rushed upon him from that day forward. So when David is introduced and we get this flashback to chapter 16, there is a level of anticipation that is introduced into the story. How will this story change now that the spirit-empowered, anointed king of Israel enters the narrative? The first thing that David changes is our perspective. At the end of the last scene, in verse 11, Israel's king and Israel's army are afraid, and we're not surprised by that. That is, we're not surprised by that if we are looking at this situation from a purely human perspective. And that's the way that Israel is looking at this situation. But when David shows up, he brings a new perspective. When he starts talking, he reframes the whole narrative. He's been going back and forth, see this in verses 17 to 20, from Bethlehem to the battle line to bring supplies to his brothers. And on one of these trips, he overhears Goliath spouting out his taunts. Look at verse 23. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. You could say this is the turning point in this entire narrative. David heard him. And this changes everything. Verse 24, we are told again that Israel was afraid. And the men of Israel say to David, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. Then David speaks. He gives the first speech in this passage, but not only is it the first speech in this passage, these are the first words out of David's mouth, recorded in the whole Bible. The first words of King David recorded in the whole Bible, I bet they're important. We would do well to listen. Look at verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Notice where David ends his speech. With the living God. We are to verse 26. We're halfway through this passage. And this is the first time God's name has been mentioned in this passage. That's the problem. Goliath was a big problem. A really big one. Six cubits in a span big. But the bigger problem for Israel is they had forgotten to factor God into the equation. David reframes the situation. 
He brings a different perspective. He changes the worldview, if I could put it that way, and teaches us the first lesson of this passage that fear comes from a lack of faith. Fear comes from a lack of faith. <clears throat> There's a repeated word in 1 Samuel 17 that is critical to understanding this passage. It's the word defy. You may underline all of its occurrences in your Bible. In verse 10, Goliath said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. When Israel reports to David what's going on in verse 25, they say, surely he has come to defy Israel. But notice what David says in verse 26. It's a little different. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? To David, Israel and her army are inextricably linked with their God. An affront to Israel is an affront to God. Goliath is just defying their armies. Israel says he's defying us. David says mocking Israel is mocking God because Israel is God's firstborn son. They belong to Him. And all the way back in Genesis 12, Israel learned something. That the nations who blessed God's people would be blessed. The nations that cursed God's people would be cursed. David knows all of this. So David says, who is this guy? Goliath? He's uncircumcised. He didn't belong to the people of God. He's coming against the people of God. And God has promised to deal with such people. What are you afraid of? Have you factored God into the equation at all? Earlier in Hannah's song, she says, the adversaries of the Lord, this is verse 10 of chapter 2, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. The Lord promised to break the adversaries of the Lord to pieces. But Israel has forgotten and so they are dismayed. Literally in the Hebrew broken to pieces and afraid. Fear comes from a lack of faith. That's what David's first speech teaches us. Let's look now at his second speech. He's spoken with Israel, the men of Israel. Now he'll speak with the king of Israel, Saul, verses 31-40. to 40. Saul gets a report that David has been challenging this godless perspective among the ranks of the army. And so he calls for Saul. I mean for David. He brings him in. 
And David, in verse 32, begins his speech straight away. No small talk. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. This speech gives us our second lesson. Fear not, the Lord will fight for His people. Fear not, the Lord will fight for His people. David's heart has not failed. Literally, it has not fallen. Somebody's going to fall in this story, but David's heart has not fallen. He's not afraid because he's full of faith And he doesn't want anybody else to be afraid either. He believes the Lord will fight for His people. Now, I know that verse 32 does not say the Lord will fight for His people. David says He will fight the Philistine. But as the dialogue continues, it becomes clear that he believes that it is the Lord who will fight for him. Saul doesn't believe that David has what it takes to fight him. He's too young. He's too inexperienced. But David reminds Saul that he does, in fact, have experience. When lions and bears came after his father's flock, he struck them down. So now that this giant is coming after God's flock, will it not be the same? Look at verse 26. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine, there's those words again, shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. See, again, David brings God into the equation. He has confidence that the Lord will act because Goliath has acted against the Lord and his people. This becomes very clear that this is David's perspective in verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. What is David's confidence built on? Is it built on his true grit? Or is it built on his knowledge of the true God? David never thought his success with lions and bears was because of his own strength. He believed it was because the Lord fights for him. Everybody in the valley of Eli, at least on the side where the Israelites are, they all should know this. The most obvious example is the Exodus, which became the paradigm for the way that Israel was to think about themselves. Remember when Israel was on the banks of the Red Sea and Pharaoh was breathing down their neck with 600 chariots between Israel and the Red Sea? The people were afraid. They greatly feared, we read in Exodus 14.10, the exact same words used in verse 11 of our passage. But Moses said to them in that moment, Fear not, the Lord will fight for you. And the Lord did 
fight for Israel and the Egyptians were drowned in the sea. Now David, in his speech, is essentially saying the same thing. Nothing has changed, Israel. Fear not. God will fight for His people. He says, the Lord will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. God's been faithful to Israel, faithful to David. He's fought for them in the past. That's why David knows the Lord will fight for them in the present. If we have faith that the Lord fights for His people, a faith that's not based on some wishful thinking, but it's based off of a long track record, then we don't have to be afraid when we're facing an enemy like Goliath. An enemy that is specifically one who is against God and against His people. No weapon that's fashioned against you will stand, Isaiah says. The battle belongs to the Lord. Saul seems persuaded by David's speech, by this perspective. He says, Go, and the Lord be with you. We already know that the Lord is with David. We don't need Saul to tell us. But the question is, does Saul really believe that the Lord will save him and save him not by human ways? Sounds like he does by what he says, but what he does calls that into question. Isn't that the issue with us as well? We say that we believe the Lord fights for His people. But then what do we do? Does it prove it or does it disprove it? Saul says, the Lord be with you, but then what does he do? He starts putting armor in verse 38 on David. A helmet. A sword. A spear. So he can go and fight Goliath on Goliath's terms. So he can go against the world with the world's means. Saul has clearly missed the point. He has clearly missed the way David has reframed this whole narrative. As you know, the armor didn't work for David. He takes it off. Verse 39. And in verse 40, he takes his staff in his hand, five stones from the brook, and his sling was in his hand as he approached the Philistine. But like all good showdowns, whether it's in the Avengers or a Western, which I prefer, there needs to be um, a fair amount of speaking before the fighting takes place. So David has spoken with the men of Israel. He's spoken with the king of Israel, now he'll speak with the enemy of Israel, Goliath. And it's this speech that takes up more space in what follows than the actual battle. When David, I mean, Goliath sees David, verse 42, he disdained him. And he makes a speech to David that comes in three parts. He begins by saying to David, Am I a dog? that you come at me with sticks? 
Then he cursed David by his gods. So he too is seeing this as a battle of the gods. Then thirdly, he says, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. He's mocking David and his God in the same way that he did the Israelite army before. This sets the stage for David's speech, which parallels all three parts of Goliath's speech. Look at verses 45 to 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hand. Goliath mocks David for coming to him with sticks. David returns the favor by mocking him for coming with a sword and a spear. You see, it's all about one's perspective. From a human perspective, David looks silly coming out against a giant with shepherd's gear on. But when you bring the God of Israel into the equation, who is the one who looks silly? Goliath's height and his weapons are what are really ridiculous. Goliath says he'll give his flesh to the birds and the beasts. David says he'll do the same with Goliath and with the Philistines. So what's the difference? Goliath curses David by his gods. Gods like Dagon. Where did we last see Dagon? Lying face down in his temple. David comes, on the other hand, in the name of the Lord of hosts, and the battle belongs to the Lord. So this teaches us our third lesson. Those who defy the Lord will be defeated. This whole passage has been organized around Goliath defying Israel and Israel's God. David says the Lord will not stand for it. Those who defy him will be defeated. All of David's speeches have implied as much. Now it is made very explicit. And when it happens, and it will, when Goliath falls on his face like Dagon, it should remind the Philistine and all of the nations of the earth who will catch wind of this that there is a God in Israel and He will protect His people. The nation's rage and the people's plot in vain against the Lord and against His anointed, the Lord sets in the heavens and laughs. He holds the nations in derision.
if you oppose the Lord of hosts, you will be defeated. Bottom line. But there is salvation that is to be had as well. And we'll get to that in due course. What David said would happen, happened. Look at verses 49 to 51. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And then Israel pursued them and defeated them even further. We've covered what I plan to cover in this narrative. We've heard all three of David's speeches in their context, a speech to the men of Israel, to Saul, to Goliath. We've seen what causes fear in the people of God. It's a lack of faith in God and His promises. But when we believe that the Lord fights for His people, we don't have to be afraid. We've seen that those who defy the Lord will be defeated. How should we apply this passage to our lives? Be like David. Right? That's often the way that this passage is applied. And I don't want to deny that there's some truth to that. Why would we not want to be like David, who is demonstrating faith in the living God and in the promises that he has made to his people? But I think there's another application that we shouldn't miss. It's not simply be like David, but it is the way that we relate to the anointed king. You see, we need to remember the backdrop of this whole passage. David's anointing as the king. The Spirit of God is upon him. So we're not surprised that David is the one who steps up and is used by God to bring salvation to Israel. Not just anybody steps up in this passage. It's David. In fact, while David is very clear that he believes the battle belongs to the Lord, the Lord will deliver him, it's also very clear that he believes that he's the one who will fight the Philistine. He's the one the Lord will bring victory to. He's the one who will strike him down and cut off his head. He's the one who will give his dead body to the birds and the beasts. And so here's the final truth we learn from this passage. The Lord saves. That's the main thing. But the passage teaches us specifically that the Lord saves through His anointed King. And so the main thing we need to do Not the only thing, but the main thing we need to do is look to God's 
anointed king if we want to experience his salvation. David says something critical in verse 45 that I passed over earlier. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. It's the first time this phrase is used in the Bible on the lips of David. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Later in biblical history, in Psalm 118, this same line will be used. The people of God cry out, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then they say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. They know that the Lord will bring them salvation through the anointed King. He is the one who will lead to the defeat of the enemies of God and the enemies of His people. And Psalm 118 clearly points to Jesus. The same psalm quoted when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The crowd shout out, Hosanna, let's save us. To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. The people saw Jesus as the one God would use to save his people. But they, like Israel before them, were confused. They thought it would be through sword and spear that Jesus would save them from their enemies. But Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday only to be crucified on Good Friday. He came not to save them from Roman occupation, but from their sins. The anointed saved not by sword and spear. He was born in the city of David, in Bethlehem, placed in a feeding trough, derided by His people, mocked by the religious leaders. He was, in fact, the king, but this king came not to save by sword or spear. He came to die on a cross. He was the shepherd of Israel, but the shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, not by sword or spear. When he was rejected later that week in Jerusalem, he said something else. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He came the first time to save, not by sword or spear. But when He comes again, He will come to bring judgment on all who do not look to Him now. The Lord holds in derision all who defy the Lord and His anointed. He defeats those who defy Him. But, as Psalm 2 says at the end, to those who kiss the Son, to those who take refuge in Him, they will be saved. Friends, we face a foe far greater than Goliath, and it's not what many people call the giants in your life. We face death and judgment because of our sin. We face Satan who roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
but the battle belongs to the Lord. The Lord saves through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. To all who place their faith in Him, we do not have to be afraid of this coming judgment. God fights for us. And I want to end with this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not together with Him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the One who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all of these, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. How should you respond to this passage this morning? First and foremost, to look to God's anointed King to save you, to place your faith and your trust in Him, and then to live in confident faith that the Lord has won the major victory. And so all of the other smaller stuff that is in our path really should not trouble us. He who did not spare His own Son, how will He not graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Father, so often we fail to bring You into the equation. We look at the things that we're up against and we tremble. Help us to see that You are a God who fights for Your people not by sword or spear, but through the cross and the resurrection of Your Son. Help us to see and to have confidence that because You have provided for us such a rich salvation, You will also provide for us in the daily needs in our lives. Help us to trust You and to wait upon You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.